So I'm going to DM Tressie her first tweet, and we're going to get into it. Here's Tressie McMillan Cottom. <laughs> I'm going to read it in vernacular because I type yeah, it in vernacular. That's what I love. <laughs> All right. So they told baby girl they would never score her athleticism fairly because it would make her competitors feel bad. And now they're mad that she won't be there to score unfairly. Do I understand this correctly? They got 30,100 retweets and 200,000 likes. I was talking about Simone Biles and Simone is one of those, you know, uh, you know, similar to Venus and Serena and um, Coco and all these just wonderful um, uh, young black women athletes in particular. And this is this moment where I felt like she was coming into her own Mm -hmm. as like a political figure, um, you know, stepping outside of that little box that they put Olympic athletes in. And she was saying you know, they were penalizing her because one of her routines had a, a move with a rate of difficulty that is apparently off the charts, right? right? And one of the things she's known for is her athleticism. And um, gymnastics tends to prefer, uh, quote unquote, grace to athleticism. Right. All these coded <laughs> words, right? Yes. And that yes. is very coded with race and class and gender, yeah. um, read through body type, you know. Right. And so she was saying, listen, you don't want me to do my best, what would make this challenging for me, I will go home. And I thought that is just the kind of freedom that I wish for every woman and especially every black woman, the freedom to say, I see what you get out of me being here. Right. But there's nothing for me (laughs) in this scenario. And so I will stay home. Yeah. Uh, And I loved that and could relate, I guess. I loved it too. I was moved because it felt like perhaps she was putting her mental health of prioritizing her mental health and her wellness over others who wanted things from her. I think it's important to to note that it was women athletes who I think really shaped that conversation. And that happened um, over the pandemic, didn't it? And there were some white dudes that had some op-eds, I think, in the Times Mm -hmm. perhaps or somewhere saying some stuff. and. Yeah, that if you don't want to compete at that level, if you can't handle, if you don't have the mental toughness, again, coded language. And, you know, we're in this time where I think athletes of Simone's age are like all people her age, which is they have a very different understanding of what they owe. Yes. An audience or a boss or an employer. Right. And I think it is actually fundamentally healthy. And especially when you're talking about black athletes, um, I think it's really important for them to push back on what honestly feels a lot like a ownership. (laughs) This is very... (laughs) The stages of essay writing by me. One, have idea. Two, tell myself idea is amazing. Three, Decide idea is so stupid. Four, get angry at imaginary person for calling my idea stupid. Five, argue with imaginary person while driving my car. (laughs) Six, decides to show them. Seven, overreads. I finished the list, I presume. Yeah, yeah. Eight, does everything except write. Nine, give myself a stern talking to. (laughs) Ten, sit down and write it. Mm. Eleven, overwrite it. 
12, send a long explanatory email to editor about how it's not yet enough. <laughs> 13, editor, damn her, actually edits it and I rage scream. I read it and say, ah, oh, fuck it. <laughs> 15, secretly wish sickness on copy edits. 16, worry I didn't get enough copy edits. <laughs> 17, I tell editor, never show it to me again. 18, publish it and then never read it again. This is a very scientific process. Beautiful. That's extraordinary. I mean, obviously you are a, a renowned essayist and writer of books and articles and so forth. I feel like what's great about this, if I'm not mistaken, you're kind of telling the total truth here. Oh, yeah. No, I just finished doing it. Yeah. The reason why this feels so urgent in the tweet is that I was in the middle. Uh, the, the tweets could actually be said to be part of step uh, eight. Wow. Does everything except write. I'm like, oh, I'll write about <laughs> the cycle instead of sitting down and writing it. I had, I yeah, just set myself down to an idea that um, I had been pre-writing in the back of my mind mm -hmm. for months. I knew, I'm, you know, I was done. I knew I needed to write it. And, you know, that's the moment I think when a lot of us become toddlers and I'm certainly that and I start throwing a temper tantrum uh, and I have no one to take it out on but myself right. and my dog right? and my dog doesn't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that is the problem. You know, I'm in a constant uh, negotiation with myself about um, when it's time to do the thing. When I was about eight years old, I checked a reference book out of the library that listed all the boarding schools in the United States. <laughs> I wrote self-addressed stamped envelopes uh, to a dozen requesting applications. When they arrived, I slipped them under my mom's bedroom door. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an asterisk beside S-A-S-E, uh, uh, the acronym for self-addressed um, <laughs> stamped envelopes because I realized, of course, young people would have no idea what that meant. And I said, right. you better, swear to God, you better not ask me what that is. <laughs> and that was in response to a prompt saying, uh, what's a story that encapsulates who you were as a young person? And your tweet got 15 retweets and 1,042 likes. One of the reasons why I think that story instantly came to mind uh, when I read that tweet asking, you know, what sums you up? I mean, it has all of my stuff. A right. library, right? Uh, being precocious, mm -hmm. you know, going by myself and figuring this out on my own. And you went to college in North Carolina, right? I did in Durham, North Carolina Central University. Did you like going to a traditionally or historically black college? No, Gabe, I, my life was so defined by black authority figures and black culture. It was never even a question. And my mom had gone to an historically black college. She went to Winston-Salem State uh, University in North Carolina. And my dad had gone to the other big uh, HBCU in the state, which is North Carolina A&T. And may I ask what your folks did? So uh, my mom, she got a job with the airline and we okay. really became an airline family. And my dad was a serial entrepreneur. Um, I think I get a lot of my technical acumen from him. I mean, you are sitting in your own studio right now, so that's... That's true. Yeah. 
But my mom's side gave me the greatest gift of all, I think. Uh, they were readers. So my grandmother, being a good church girl, read Demonic Stephen King. Wow! <laughs> I've always found that hilarious. She's like the Sunday school teacher and she loves wow. Stephen King. Um, and she was very theatrical and had a kid's heart. And so she would play with me right. as like a playmate and we would come up with stories and act them out. Okay. Uh, and um, hers were always scary, <laughs> which was very inappropriate that <laughs> I think about it. Um and uh, I remember her acting out uh, the Tommy Knockers. Yeah. My mother to this day is like a um, more of a mystery, so not gore horror, but um, uh, mystery and um, and African American literature. This is where I get I this massive two set volume called the Negro Anthology. But it was like the defining set of like black literature up until like I think the 80s right, or something right. when they had the renaissance and black literature um, studies but at the time we had this my mom had, had been a panther black panther in college oh, and really? so she had a that lot of stuff so cool wow yeah. yeah and so she had a lot of that and so our home was full of yeah um, uh, Harlem renaissance era uh, black literature and that was in Charlotte or Winston-Salem Winston-Salem Winston -Salem. yeah yeah, the Winston-Salem chapter of the Black Panther Party was its most, one of its most organized and longest running uh, chapters of the Black Panther Party. And uh, my uncle was the president, uh, Larry Little. Larry Little. That's amazing. Yeah, my mom was a soldier and yeah. Like, is there any anecdote or story that uh, you sticks with you, like that your mother told you from that time or from that experience? Oh. Gosh, that is, a, um, you know, if you'd asked me that question like two years ago, I wouldn't have an answer, which yeah. is uh, so interesting. But about two years ago, the uh, that chapter had its 50th anniversary. Wow. And my mom went yeah. um, and reconnected with all of her old comrades. Right, right. And so they're now very present in my life. I now see and talk to them all of the time. And it has surfaced a lot of stories that I had forgotten. Yeah. Um, about, uh, you know, listen, the stories from old Panthers, though, are like, they're only funny, I think, if you've trauma bonded. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Their stories are things like, you remember that time we almost got shot? Yeah. Uh, protesting the prison up in South Carolina. <laughs> yeah. And to them, it's like summer camp. They're right. like giggling and, you know, but hearing it secondhand, I'm like, right. you people are traumatized. Wild. I mean, they um, helped clear the way in many ways, I presume. I don't claim to yeah. know, but for the next generations. Yeah. I think what's so stunning for me is to look at them and just realize how young they were. Yeah. Right. We're all you and I were older than they were then. They were they were babies, pre-internet babies, which I right. think is just a different even, again, you know, a different kind of understanding of the world. Their worlds were so much smaller, yet they had such big vision. Um, my mom was from a small town with like a thousand people in eastern North Carolina when she went to Winston-Salem State. Wow. So you go from a town that size where you are what there were 20 people in her graduating class, right. you know, and you go and you start talking about, you know, connecting with Castro and, and revolutionizing black people all over the, the, the global south. Like, that's just a huge jump. Right. In thinking. Um, and so that is one of the things, that, uh, you know, as I reflect on it, vantage point of the age I am now. Yeah. To think about how young uh, they are. You know, it's not like the violence that we see today on the videos wasn't going on and perhaps even more back then. So people really mm -hmm. putting their lives on the line and not uh, 
having a video recorder to present evidence, you know? Yeah, all we have are their stories for the most part. Um, You know, I talked to, when I talked to my Uncle Larry and he, you you can tell these amazing vivid stories about, you know, the cop he got into a fight with or how they smuggled so-and-so out or something like that. And, um, And you realize, and they tell the stories over and over again, but you realize the importance of that in a pre-video culture right that we know anything at all about that time is because they can tell those stories over and over again and i yeah i have a lot of appreciation for that do you think there's someone out there that is archiving or recording those stories because it sounds that's a great question and i will tell you this gabe i won't say too much more about it i can tell you i have spent the last year connecting with people on that very question more twitterverse after the break. Welcome back to Twitterverse. I'm about to DM another tweet to author and cultural critic Tressie McMillan Cottom. All right. Mm. And if you don't want to read it, we can go on to the next one. Up to you. No, this is fine. No, these are just taking me to moments. It's so interesting. All right. A thing that bothers me is how much discourse freezes black people in history when we are the most future people that I know. That's beautiful. Uh, That's 84 retweets and 1,117 likes. I was um, reading a book excerpt Uh in a magazine, and I had read the book in early stages and knew what the book's argument was and was really excited for it to come out. And this is a present tense book. It it is a book that was very much speaking uh, to the moment, like something like, you know, on tyranny is or something like that. Like it's a contemporary book. It's current affairs, we might say, in the bookstore. And yet the excerpt had chosen, and I get it, because it was about black people and it was about race, Hmm. uh, had chosen all these really historical images to accompany the story. And the problem I have with that is that when you freeze people in history, mm-hmm. it means you're not dealing with people in the present tense. Our politics are still very much alive and we're still here. And while, it, yes, it's important to understand the historical antecedents of things, it can be an escape because we don't get we don't feel guilty for history. Right. Well, I wasn't born yet. So it, it lets the audience off the hook in a certain kind of way. Right. Um, and I think white audiences in particular are always more comfortable studying, engaging with minority people, talking about us in the historical context because they refuse to deal with how they are implicated in the present tense. Do you think in that sense you could say black people are the future, like they're leading the culture? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. When I say not only are black people like the future, we think in the future tense. So when so much of your collective identity is tied to a moment of global trauma as the global slave trade is and you think about it what what do we think about the future 
There right. is no nostalgia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> for black people, <laughs> you know that's why you have such a problem casting us in like time travel shows. Right, right. Where the hell are we gonna go? Yeah, where are you go? Where are you gonna put us? Um, without having a very different movie or yes. show. Yes. Right. So nostalgia operates differently for us, right. and because of that, I think we tend to be more future thinking. <laughs> The reason black people ask who all going to be there is we have a different mask for different situations. That had 472 retweets and 4,217 likes. The, the tweet is a reference to uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's We Wear the Mask. Um, right. Uh, classic poem, We Wear the Mask, We Wear, man, wear the Mask. And it's one of those uh, poems that if you were a little black girl who could talk good, as we say, when I was growing up, yeah. you were in lots of speech competitions and mm -hmm. poetry competitions. And this was one you recited a lot at church or something like that. Right. And so it's one of those that I know very well. And it's just, but, and then I grew up to be a, a black sociologist, which comes with reading and studying Du Bois, of course. And Du Bois has this concept, double consciousness, and they're the same thing. We're just talking about the presentation of self that minoritized people have to do to protect our core identity and our core self. You know, it isn't safe to be your full self everywhere you are. And we become extremely skilled. One of the reasons why I think we are the world's most natural sociologists yes. is that Black Americans are extremely skilled at ascertaining the social conditions of every environment. We have right. to because we're immediately scanning to see who do we need to be in this space right. to be safe. It's constant, right? I mean, I, constant. I try to tell my mom, my the older folks in my family, like... I don't claim to know, but just from what mm -hmm. I've been able to ascertain, it's like feeling of a target on you or vulnerability yeah. at any minute. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a low level buzz. It's not like I do think sometimes white people think we mean we go around and we do like a checklist. I'm like, it is actually more insidious than that in yeah. that it is subconscious and you don't have to surface it. I always think of that Toni Morrison quote about like the purpose of racism is mm -hmm. to distract you from your work. That uh, is correct. And I always just like that rocked me and I think about it all the time. Me it's, too. <laughs> it's like the thing you just described about like the um, having to wonder what mask you might put on on in a situation mm -hmm. that's distracting you from your work right all the time yeah yeah and like i'm and i mean work largely like my work in life yes it's not just that i mean you know we're not talking job right i mean my life's work like what are you here on earth to do right freeing up the mental space to get on with that yeah as opposed to figuring out what role you need to play all of the time is just an absolute game changer this is a huge honor to have you on my podcast. And so thank you so much, Tracy. I'm really grateful. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being such a thoughtful reader. This was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.